Senator Hagel is serving his second term in the United States Senate, and he is a member of four different committees in the U.S. Senate, foreign relations, banking, housing, and urban affairs, along with intelligence and rules. Senator Hagel is an individual who, unlike some in the Congress, has had a strong career in terms of civil and military affairs. And in that regard, he has the image or the frame of reference of Cincinnatus uh, there uh, in terms of uh, the role model of, of a person who's committed to peace and civility and stability, but in times of war uh, does not shirk to call the national duty call of his, of his country. Senator Hagel has more uh, awards than any one that I've ever been privileged to introduce, and I'm not going to call attention to the specific awards, only that their numbers are there in terms of a total of 34 major national and international awards that span the spectrum of civic affairs, business affairs, uh, professional affairs, uh, patriotic duties, working with the veterans, uh, working uh, with those who served in our armed forces even at, as we speak. Uh, he and his brother Tom served in Vietnam in, in 1968. So he, when he speaks up and speaks out on these issues pertaining to our country's role in regional and world affairs and what are America's true national security and related interest and what are the proper components of our relationships with our friends and allies and partners, this is an individual who speaks from first-hand knowledge, and not just in particular the region in which we are positioned now, uh, but half the way around the globe from, from our country and almost everywhere in between. Uh, Senator Hagel, <coughs> Hagel has had many uh, positions in addition to his awards as members of board of directors, board of governors, and Board of Trustees. I commend to you his biography in the program booklet and think in terms of your photocopying it and giving it to your sons, daughters, nieces, and nephews, and those of you who are among educators here present today to make sure that each and every one of your students read it and find the inspiration in those contents there, because if he can do it, others can do it as well. Senator Hagel. John, thank you. I am grateful for an opportunity to exchange some thoughts with you today. Uh, but I am uh, most pleased for the opportunity to thank you for what uh, this organization represents, the focus you put on the great issues of our day, the enthusiasm, the energy, uh, and the resources that uh, you have devoted to making a better world. And I am not unaware that you all have spheres of influence that take you in many directions, and your time is precious and your resources uh, are limited. So to prioritize uh, your efforts to uh, help bring together a troubled region, and just as your theme notes to today, uh, it is in the common interests uh, of all mankind. I want to um, note in particular the students 
uh, here today. As uh, John has referenced some of the uh, students and uh, their professors, I know this is important for you, and I welcome you to this opportunity not to, to hear me. I'm the weak link in the program, but uh, John has overlooked that. And uh, nonetheless, uh, to be here, and I hope you have had an opportunity to be here for Ambassador Ojali's comments, and uh, thank you, Mr. Ambassador, for what you do and your comments. But also, if you can spend a good part of your day participating uh, in this event, it, it gives you a good grounding for what uh, you will inherit as the next generation of leaders in our country. Uh, you will learn a great deal because it is through these kinds of efforts and this process and these kinds of exchanges that we find answers to these great challenges that face our world uh, today. And we are living at a time not unlike other transformational times in the history of man, uh, where the challenges loom large, uh, but so do the opportunities. And it is always the responsibility of leadership uh, to thread their way through uh, those challenges and weave into those challenges not just the answers and solutions, uh, but the opportunities and taking advantage of those opportunities to, in fact, uh, assure that the next generation inherits uh, a better world, a more peaceful world, a world more fully complete of understanding each other. I want to begin my uh, brief comments, and then we will open it up to questions comments, solutions, insults, whatever you would like to exchange, uh, with um, a focus on the theme of your, your gathering. I have always found in all that I have uh, been privileged to be part of in my life that common interests the common denominator of common interests, uh, in fact, represents the glue that holds societies together, civilizations. And as the great historian Arnold Toynbee once wrote, that the history of man is the history of challenge-response. Challenge-response. And the 23 or 24 civilizations in the history of man have always had to deal with that. That one question. And when we think of the great challenges that face our world today, six and a half billion people, all now part of a global community, we will not unwind that. That global community underpinned by a global economy. There's no part of the world, no region of the world, that doesn't affect all the other regions. We are woven together in the same fabric of the same cloth. 
That's humanity. And if, in fact, we are to prevail in this world of great new challenges, extremism, terrorism, proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, endemic poverty, pandemic health issues, environmental challenges, and maybe the most insidious challenge of all, most difficult to deal with, despair. Because when man is without dignity, when man is without hope, little else matters. And when you further examine the demographic of the six and a half billion citizens of the world today, we find that almost 40% are under the age of 19 years old. And most of those reside in the most troubled areas of the world, certainly the area that you are focused on today. The Middle East uh, is one such part of the world. Much of Africa, a good deal of Asia, a good deal of Latin America, North Korea. These are areas that essentially were left behind over the last 65 years as man was accomplishing astounding historic advancements for the human race, whether in health, whether in science, technology, transportation. But all people were not beneficiaries of that great human advancement. And it is there that we find our greatest challenges, in these particular areas that were left behind. Many reasons for that, much blame to go around, but the fact is we are where we are. Our responsibility is to find enough of a solution, to put enough of these challenges on some high ground, so that we have hope in dealing with these great challenges. We won't fix them all, not in this generation. But these young people here today need to be prepared. They need to be inspired. They need to be ready to assume that next level of responsibility so that they can go on and fix the things we couldn't fix. And no generation has ever failed at that. And we've had some great challenges through the history of man, great challenges. But all in all, when we look over the last 65 years, uh, we've accomplished an awful lot. No World War III, that's pretty significant. No nuclear exchange, it's rather significant. We've brought more people into individual liberty and freedom and democracy than ever before. Uh, we saved more people from hunger than ever before. Uh, recognizing we still have great, great strides to go, recognizing we have failed in areas, we have made mistakes in areas, the United States has been part of that. But when we focus on a common purpose, on a common goal, on a common interest, just as the great leaders after World War II did, when they built coalitions of common interest, the United Nations, NATO, World Bank, IMF, dozens of multilateral banks, development organizations. Why was that? Was that in the benefit, for the benefit of one nation, one people? No. There was no zero-sum game. Trade. Trade raises the standards of living for all people. Trade's not a guarantee. Winners and losers. 
Trade is a very critical part of exchanging knowledge and information and relationships and understanding. It's imperfect, but I prefer it to sending armies against each other. But it's a common interest. We built these institutions after World War II to bring some priorities, some ability for all mankind to prosper, some boundaries in how we do that rather than what we experienced in the first 50 years of the 20th century when we elbowed each other out of the way for oil, for rubber, things that led to the great conflagrations of the first half of the 20th century. All institutions are imperfect. Each individual is imperfect. But overall, we framed a pretty good world working together in common interests, in common purpose. And just as your theme is about the common interests of energy, of diplomacy, of trade, of humanity, we're all the same in the most fundamental ways. It matters little what your religion is, what your color of your skin is, what region of the world is, your background, what your culture is, what your tradition is, what your history is. What matters most? Family, peace, opportunity, some ability of, of some human dignity to express that dignity, to express your opinions, to express some sense of, of liberty, your own choice. That's not unique to Christianity or Judaism or Islam that I'm aware of. It is a common interest, it is a common purpose for all mankind. And if we are, in fact, to resolve these great issues, or at least begin to put these issues in a frame of reference where we can resolve them, and certainly the Middle East is the most combustible area of the world today that we're dealing with, most dangerous, most complicated, then we're going to have to realize that these common interests have to come into play. Now. If you subscribe to any of that, and what I have just said is not profound, it's not unique, it's not new, but I intensely believe that's the way you solve problems, through cooperation. You don't solve problems at the end of a barrel of a gun. There is no military solution in Iraq. There will not be a military solution in Iraq. The future of Iraq will be determined by the Iraqi people. We can help, we can buy time, we can frame things up, but in the end, the Iraqis will have to sort Iraq out, just as every nation in the world has to figure out whether they are going to find the courage and all that goes with leading their people and putting their people first. The United States can't do that for anyone. No country can do that for another country and another people. But there are enough common interests that allow us to help do that. And so if we are to address these great issues, and we must because the future of mankind is at stake, there is no margin of error anymore in, in the possibility of wars. When we're talking about weapons of mass destruction, a nuclear exchange, there is no margin of error 
even smart bombs, as precise as we believe they are, and as good as they are, as they have transformed a great deal of warfare, still kill a lot of innocent people. And if you look at the weapons being used in Iraq today, or anywhere in the world, still it is very much the family of the most crude weaponry out there that does the most damage. Suicide bombers. Smart bombs do not stop suicide bombers. What stops suicide bombers? Well, I don't have all of that answer. But I do know that when you don't deal with the human condition and you don't focus on the future of man and people are in fact locked into a cycle of despair, they are very easy prey for those who would use religion, those who would use philosophies about life or government or the hereafter, to use these people, prey upon these people, to do things that are totally alien from the interest of mankind. It is not in the interest of mankind regardless of what you believe or how much you've been wrong to strap dynamite around your waist and go in and blow up innocent people. That is not acceptable, regardless of the purpose of your cause or the nobility of your cause. That is not acceptable. So how do you stop it? Well, you stop it by getting underneath the problems. What it is that drives this? What is it that does this to people? I'm not aware of any religion, when you look at the Koran or the Talmud or the Bible or any religious document of any standing, that purports to use these kinds of tactics. Terrorism, killing innocent people. I'm not, a, I'm not aware of a religion today that states that and says that is acceptable because it's in the interest of my God. It doesn't happen. So rather than screaming at each other and having all of our transmitters turned on with all of our receivers turned off and talking about war and threatening and bludgeoning and not engaging, well, where do you think this is going to go? It's very predictable. I have, for example, said regarding Iran, I think the United States should engage Iran directly, unconditionally. Does it mean negotiate? Maybe we will. But I, I would take uh, the country of Libya, Mr. Ambassador, and use Libya as a good example. Uh, I think Libya is better off today. I think the Middle East is better off today. North Africa is better off today. The United States, the world is better off today because through engagement, through mutual interests, through some common denominators, uh, we have seen a relationship develop, the United States and Libya and other nations, that is far better today than it was 10 years ago, five years ago. I don't think Libya gave up its dignity. Libya didn't give up its sovereignty, nor did the United States. We found some mutual interests. We found common denominators. Uh, the relationship with the North, other North African countries along the Mediterranean and the United States, far better today than it was five years ago. Uh, why? Because the governments of Tunisia, Morocco, Algeria, they don't want terrorists or extremists 
in their country, disrupting their country. Each country is different. We respect that. But we've found some common interests here through intelligence sharing and gathering, more trade, more understanding, more reaching out. And I think one of the internal issues that the United States is going to have to refocus on uh, is, in fact, reintroducing itself to the world. We're not going to fix these problems through armies. We're not going to fix these problems through the military. We are burdening our military in Iraq. We're asking our military in Iraq to do things it can't do. Militaries are important, absolutely. It is part of the arsenal of what a nation has to deal with the realities of the framework of foreign policy. And foreign policy, policy really is the framework of a nation's interests. Everything fits in to that framework of foreign policy, your energy needs, your trade, stability, security in the world, which directly affect every nation, certainly your immediate security, any nation's security, relationships with others, diplomacy, all fit within this arc of foreign policy. But those must reside around a basis of common interests, of common purpose. And I think if we will shift, and I believe we will in this country, shift to paying more attention to those issues and attaching our energy and our resources to those issues and engaging the world. I, I often use the example of the president whose name is on this building, Ronald Reagan. I don't know if there uh, was a president of the United States who was more anti-communist in what he believed what he said, how he said it, than Ronald Reagan. This is the president who referred to the Soviet Union always as the evil empire. But what did Ronald Reagan do? He actually sat down with the leaders of the evil empire. He sat down with Gorbachev. And they almost came to an agreement in Iceland to start a process to eliminate nuclear weapons. But he understood the importance of engagement. He understood things don't get better when you don't talk with people, when you don't communicate. If nothing else, the risk for unintended consequences, the risk for misunderstanding leads to military catastrophe. It leads always to catastrophe. Now, there are some, I think, within our government and other governments, I think some in Iran, for example, uh, who want that, who wish for that. Some in our government, the United States, I believe, truly believe that that is the way you solve the problem with Iran. Uh, I don't. Uh, we always have the last option of war. But I hope my country, the United States, has learned something from the past five years in Iraq. I hope we've learned an awful lot. It's been an expensive lesson. And until we are able to frame up the larger issues with the essence of common interest in the Middle East, which is your topic, which is your focus, then the possibility of solving much else remains very aloof, very aloof. The Israeli-Arab issue, uh, I have been told by every Arab leader, uh, is at the core more than any one issue of these relationships. Now, if we can bring an Israeli-Palestinian 
peace process, ultimately to a, a two-nation state solution, which everyone agrees is the solution. We seem to have a hard time getting there. But if we can bring that up onto some high ground, that's not going to fix the problem in Iraq. That's not going to fix the problem in Iran. But it will go a long way toward developing not just an atmosphere and an environment and a flexibility that Arab leaders have to have more ability and more range to deal with some of the other issues in a give and take and a compromise position in how we deal with these other issues. They are all connected. You can't disconnect the Arab-Israeli issue with Iraq, with Iran, with Syria, with Lebanon. They are woven into the same regional fabric. And I have addressed that in legislation and speeches. And until we are able to focus with some strategic context, which I don't believe we've done over the last few years, in how we deal with the Arab-Israeli issue, how we deal with the Middle East, until there's a strategic context in place, rather than just ricocheting from crisis to crisis, or good idea to good idea. That one didn't work, let's try another one. That's, that's not the way great nations work. That's not the way sovereign nations can make a difference in the world. Well, I uh, am much encouraged that uh, organizations such as yours, individuals such as you, and the institutions you each represent uh, are staying focused, involved, uh, and can continue to work with government officials on these great issues. Uh, we in the government reflect who we represent. Uh, we are products of where we come from. We must stay close to that. And those in my business who get in trouble are the ones who, for whatever reason, come loose of their moorings or disconnect from the realities and the people that they represent. That does not mean, that does not mean that you don't have a higher obligation to lead and say things clearly. And I uh, think it's fundamental not just to a democracy, but to any form of a society, uh, whether it's a tribal society, whether it's a small town in western Nebraska, it doesn't make any difference. If we are to lead, we have only one currency, and that's trust. And if you debase that currency, if you lose that currency, you can't lead. And that applies to everything in life, personal relationships, business relationships. If people don't trust you, if they don't trust your purpose, your effectiveness is gone. Your ability to lead is gone. Lead, leading is not managing. You can hire managers. You can't hire leaders. And that's what all nations look for, responsible leaders who put the interest of their nation and their people before their own interests. If we could just fulfill that one point in the 191 nations on Earth to some modicum of success, we wouldn't need armies. If we could just do that, we must keep trying. These young people uh, today uh, are the ones that we will look to uh, to help us do that. But we have to help them. We must help them prepare. And this is our watch. 
this is our time and we cannot fail because if we fail the Middle East just being one but an important part of this then these young people will inherit the most dangerous world mankind's ever known. Uh, I prefer uh, not to believe that that will happen. I believe that we can do better. I believe we are better. Not just the United States, I believe all peoples, all societies are better. And I believe we all want essentially one thing, the same thing. So I again thank you for what you do and thank you for allowing me an opportunity to share some thoughts and be glad to respond to any questions or anything I can address. Thank you very much. John, thank you. Well, the way I answer that is first is America is a nation of laws. We are a society of laws. We have one anchor that is more important than any one anchor in our country, and we must faithfully adhere to the precepts of that document and that's called the Constitution of the United States. I take an oath of office, the President does, every elected member of any government takes an oath of office to the Constitution. What that oath of office is all about is protecting the rights of the individuals enshrined in the Constitution and the security of our country. For over 200 years, America has done that rather well. We have protected individual liberties, and also the national interest of our country. You don't have to give up liberty for security. Don't ever give up liberty for security. We're a stronger, smarter, better nation than that. And if, in fact, this so-called asymmetrical challenge of war today is not about Soviet tanks and planes coming through the Fulda Gap in Germany, or great armies, or great air forces, or great navies coming against us, which is the case, but more of an insidious attack, as we saw, of course, on September 11, 2001, you're not going to fix this by giving up liberties. We're doing, we're doing this right now in the Intelligence Committee, I'd serve on, we're working on a revamping of the federal uh, or the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, FISA. And I've been one of those who has constantly pushed, no, there must be accountability. No one person should have the power to say to 300 million Americans, trust me, trust me, if I have to wiretap your phones or whatever, believe me, I know, and the CIA director knows, the National Security Advisor knows, and you just put your trust in me. I don't put my trust in any one politician or any one person. You put your trust in the Constitution. I don't take an oath of office. <laughs> the most difficult and pressing and realistic challenge to the 
security of this country is not from terrorism. That's a reality. It's a problem. We're going to have to deal with it. We are dealing with it. We're doing it pretty well. It, the, the biggest challenge to the freedoms of, of America are concentrations of power. Big government, unaccountable government, big business, and big media. And too much power in the hands of too few people is very dangerous. That's the way I'd answer your question. Well, Dan, I think you have uh, put your finger on uh, a core issue and the essence of, of leadership in the Middle East for the role the United States can play or can't play and how much damage we've done to ourselves. And I think the United States has done great damage to itself uh, in that role of an honest broker. Uh, an honest broker implies, obviously, that, that that broker has the capability and the standing from both parties, or how many parties involved in the dispute or the issue, that there is some amount of trust in that broker. And I talked about trust a few minutes ago, about the currency of trust. And if, if, if you have a situation where one side doesn't trust you, or, or one side thinks that you're siding with the other side, in particular the Israeli-Arab conflict, then uh, your point is, is very relevant, then we are essentially unable to be a so-called honest broker. Now, uh, there's no question uh, in the Arab-Israeli issue that uh, Israel is a nation today as a result of the United States. Uh, Israel has been a strong ally. We have been a strong ally of Israel since 1948. Uh, we will be. My opinion should be. But I've also said this, not at the expense of our relationships with Arab countries not at the sacrifice of our friendships with the, with the Arabs. It does not need to be that way. It does not need to be that way. And so I talked about trying to address this issue. I said it in a little different lay, way when I said one of the great challenges we have ahead of us, I believe, is reintroducing America to the world. And within that component, uh, if you believe that, and we're in a lot of trouble in the world, by the optics of everyone else thinking uh, that America is something we Americans don't think we are. You can take any measurement of that. Take Gallup's poll, take Pew's poll, take every international poll, Zogby's poll, take anybody's. It's consistent. Whether it's Turkey having a 10% approval of Americans, or whether it's Australia, 15%, whether it's our European friends and allies, why is that? Americans are perplexed by that. I understand that. Uh, Americans are decent people. Uh, we've done an awful lot of good in the world, made mistakes too. But why is that optic the way it is? Well, we're going to have to understand that we have to reverse optics too. It isn't just America's optics. And we say, well, this is the way we look at it, and this is the way we're going to do it, and we'll talk to you based on our conditions, our place, our time, and our agenda. Now, if that's not good enough, we won't talk to you, and then we'll penalize you. 
We've got to reverse the optics. We have to understand why is it that, that so many people in the world have such a negative view of America? Why is it they don't trust our purpose? What, what's wrong here? What has gone wrong? And we have to focus on that, or because the, your question that you ask is going to be as critical a question as there will be in this next generation and right now, because we will be unable to broker anything. And, and if you think the military is the answer to this, threatening people, we'll go to World War III if we have to, then, then you better start figuring out in America where you're going to get the soldiers. We are now at a societal breaking point. We've got a nation of 300 million people. And we're asking less than 1% of this society to carry all the sacrifice and bear all the burden, do all the fighting, do all the dying. Now, you're not going to be able to sustain that. Why do you think the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral, Admiral Mullen, is on a tour around the country? Stories in the front page of the papers yesterday. Sitting down with all these captains who are leaving the Army and the Marines. And he's, under, he's trying to understand, why are you leaving? And I give him great credit for doing that. And they're telling him why they're leaving. We live in a world of abstractions in Washington. We talk about war, and let's send three or four more combat brigades. What does that mean? That means human beings. That means families. That means sacrifice. That means consequences. That means all the realities of humanity. But yet we live in this world of abstractions and policies and subparagraphs. You, you can't fix the problems of the world like that. It won't work. It never has worked. And it's more complicated today. Last question, Dr. Bechtel. Uh, well, thank you, and uh, I uh, am a, a great admirer of Senator Fulbright's vision, his courage, and it took a lot of courage to do what he did and say what he said at a time when there were very few people in his own party uh, taking any of those positions, let alone questioning, questioning positions. And I think I've always at least begun with a premise in political life, one of our responsibilities, I've always believed, if we have the privilege and honor of serving, uh, is to question politics, to question policy, to question government. And I uh, was told once that I was unpatriotic because I was questioning my country. And I said, no, there's a difference. I said, it's not unpatriotic to question your government and government policy. It is unpatriotic not to question your government or a government's policy. Whether you agree with it or not, that's the whole point of a constitution. That's the whole point of a co-equal branch of government. We have three. And it's not by accident that Article I of the Constitution is not about the President of the United States. And, I, and by the way, I'm a strong believer in a strong president. Strong believer in that. We have to have, must have, a strong president. But Article I is about the Congress. 
Not because I'm there. I'm, I'm just a fleeting steward at this time. And I'll, I, I won't even be a footnote when it's all over. But there's a reason, and that is we, the Congress, are closest to the people. We are elected by the people. Our president's not even elected by the people, as you know. Elected by Electoral College. Matter of fact, if we were elected by the people, Al Gore would have been a president, as you know. Uh, so that's the reason. And we have a role, the Congress. And if you have any doubt about that, which there's been some question and some debate on the floor of the Senate over the last two years, and I constantly remind some of my colleagues, and I'd pull a little of Bob Byrd and impress people and pull out my Constitution, and I say, read Section 8 of Article 1. It tells you about the responsibilities of Congress in, oh my goodness, foreign policy, in military policy, in military affairs. And you'll be quite surprised if you've not read Section 8 recently, the specific language in that section, in the Constitution, that gives the Congress specific responsibility for very specific things when it comes to foreign policy. Well, that said, your question, I think, is particularly appropriate uh, because as you ask the question framing up the Middle East today and reflecting on what Fulbright said, and I just finished the new book on Eisenhower, Ike, which I would recommend to all of you. It's an astoundingly good book. I think I know a lot of books on Eisenhower have been good. This one, I, Michael Corda wrote it, is really, really excellent. And, and I was struck the other night as I was getting toward the end of it, it reflects on what you're talking about, what Fulbright said. Eisenhower said in the 50s about the Middle East, he said, America should never, ever get bogged down in the Middle East as an occupation power, for regardless of the reason. Because if you ever do, if we ever do, it will be catastrophe. Five years, 170,000 troops in Iraq. That's an occupation power. There's no functioning government in Iraq. And you ask about the Middle East in the interest of time, I would just say this very briefly. I have always believed, and I noted it in some of my comments, that there cannot, will not be any prospect for any kind of peace, stability, prosperity in the Middle East unless there is a regional dynamic, strategic regional dynamic policy in every way framed as to the future of the Middle East. That doesn't mean nations give up sovereignty. That doesn't mean nations give up anything. But for example, Iran is on the front pages. We've got a, our president talking about maybe World War III, and Vice President Cheney can hardly w wait to get to the next war speech about attacking Iran next. Does anybody believe that there's going to be peace in the Middle East without Iran? Maybe you do. I don't. Does anybody believe there's going to be peace in the Middle East until we find some way to start bringing this Israeli Arab problem into some transparency, some high ground, so we can move toward a two-state solution? I don't. Of course not. It's all framed in the same general area. It's complicated. And I'm not near as smart as most everybody in here about the Middle East. And I'm quickly out of my depth on these things. I'm a senator afterward. After all, I, we don't know much about anything. but. Uh, <laughs> It never stops us from giving speeches, of course, or saying anything, but that's not a good answer to your question, but I think it's, at least in the interest of time, it's my general response to the question. Yeah, super. John, thank you. thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.